Amen. Thank you, Tillman. Just one announcement for the message, and I, I apologize for forgetting this. Well, I didn't forget it. I just didn't remember it. We have two of our young men going down to Honduras this week to help complete this roof for the school there in Tegucigalpa. Uh, Glenn, Glenn, would you mind standing? If she would let go of you, yeah, Glenn. And um, Kevin, Kevin, would you stand as well? These men are going to help. Uh, there's a team. They're joining up with a few men from Racine Bible Church with Dennis pausing, and they'll go from the 11th to the 18th to help complete it. So please remember to pray for these men as they do this missionary work for the coming week. Thank you. That's where we left off on Friday. They thought it was all over. The grave was sealed. But then Sunday came along. That's today. He's risen from the dead. Hallelujah. What a Savior. The first Lord's resurrection day occurred following that first Good Friday so long ago. This morning I want to explore with you very briefly the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ by focusing on the uniqueness, the necessity, and the urgency of this magnificent, life-changing, paradigm-shifting historical event. To begin, let's first look at the uniqueness of Christ's resurrection. And there are three aspects to this as well. First, the resurrection of our Lord was unique because Jesus was and is God. Now please let that sink into your mind. The one who was raised from the dead was and is God. That's unique. To state it, 
another way. The uniqueness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is tied into the uniqueness of the person of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ wasn't who he was, he couldn't have been raised the way he was. The one raised from the dead was God himself. It was no mere mortal who rose from the dead on that first Lord's resurrection day of the new covenant era. He was a man, yes, but he was more than a man. He was the God-man, the Son of God, and the Son of Man. Fully God and fully man. This is how Paul states this fact very clearly and very precisely in Romans chapter 1, 4 concerning the resurrection of this God-man. He says, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power. That means it was a powerful declaration. Jesus was declared the Son of God with power. Not made the Son of God. He did not become the Son of God because of the resurrection. He was raised because he was the Son of God. Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. There are, of course, others today, in fact, have been around for many years, who claim to be the true God, and whose followers seek to entice us to follow them, so that we might bow down and worship to their God. But my friends, listen, let me tell you, let me remind you on this Lord's resurrection day, we as the followers of Jesus Christ have an ace out of the hole that trumps every claim to another God every time. Remember, we have an ace out of the hole. Look at this.
He's not here. Hallelujah. He's not here. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He's not here. Do you believe that? Let me hear you say it. He's not here. He's risen from the dead. Just as he said. He's our ace out of the hole. All the other who claim to be God. They're still in the hole. But not our Jesus. He's alive. And he's alive forevermore. Now as I was putting this together. I couldn't help but be reminded of a little humor. Please forgive me for. You know I'm not a humorous guy. But I thought of this. As I was putting this together. This idea of a sort of the hole and all of that. Listen to this. The call to worship had just been pronounced starting Easter Sunday morning service in an East Texas church. The choir started its processional singing, Up from the grave we arose, as they marched in perfect step down the center aisle to the front of the church. The last lady was wearing shoes with very slender heels. When I read that, I said, One of that, Sister Vish. <laughs> Without a thought for her fancy heels, she marched toward the grating that covered that hot air register in the middle of the aisle. Suddenly, the heel of one shoe sank into the hole in the register grate. In a flash, she realized her predicament. Not wishing to hold up the whole processional without missing a step, she slipped her foot out of her shoe and continued marching down the aisle. There, there wasn't a hitch. The procession moved with clock-like procession, precision. The first man after her spotted the situation. And without losing a step, reached down and pulled up her shoe. But the entire grade came with her. Surprised but still singing, the man kept going down the aisle, holding in his hand the grate with the shoe attached. Everything, every, everything still moved like clockwork. Still in the tune and still in step. The next man in line stepped into the open register and disappeared from sight. <laughs> the service took on special meaning that Sunday. For just as the choir ended with, Alleluia, Christ arose. A voice was heard under the church shouting, I hope all of you are out of the way because I'm coming up now. <laughs> the little girl... The little girl closest to the aisle shouted, Come on, Jesus, we'll stay out the way. <laughs> Boy, I'm glad nothing like that happens here. You don't know. <laughs> He's our ace out of the hole. Amen? But thirdly, no, let me back up here a moment. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was unique because his death which, which preceded and necessitated his resurrection was unique. Let me repeat that one. The resurrection of Jesus was unique because his death, which preceded and necessitated his resurrection, was unique. You see, the death of Christ was the death of one who was sinless. And according to the Bible, the only people who are supposed to die are those who have sinned. Jesus Christ, of all people, was the only one who should not have died. But he did. He died on behalf 
of all sinners. The death of Christ was unique because it was a part of God's eternal plan. That Christ would die as an innocent, sacrificial lamb. As a substitute for the sins of the world. For your sin and for my sin. All planned by God that Jesus would be our substitute. The sacrifices of the Old Testament system anticipated him who would come as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look forward to him, the one who knew no sin, who would be made sin and a sin atonement for us. From eternity past, Christ was designated as the perfect sacrifice without spot, without blemish, whose death could therefore atone for the sins of all sinners. Isaiah clearly presents this truth as we saw on Friday. He was wounded for us. He was bruised for us, for our iniquities, for our transgressions. It pleased the Father to bruise him instead of us. Christ died for us according to the scriptures. Listen to what I believe is undoubtedly the most amazing statement to be found anywhere in the word of God. A statement that causes us to wonder at the mystery of our salvation and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2 verse 23. This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Isn't that an amazing statement? God's eternal decree for Jesus Christ was that he would die. But these men who did the dastardly deed thought they were doing it out of, out of hatred and spiesment for this man. But they were only carrying out God's plan. How can you put those thoughts together? These men were held responsible. These were the men that Jesus cried for on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. But God knew perfectly well, because he had planned it. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But, that's one of the most fantastic buts in Scripture. Nailed to the cross. Put him to death. But God raised him up again. Putting an end to the agony of death. Now listen to these statement, this statement here. Because or since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. It was impossible for death. Is there anything else more powerful than death? For man, no. But the Son of Man, the Son of God, yes. There is someone more powerful than death. That's Jesus Christ. It was impossible for his flesh 
to see decay. It was impossible. Why? Because he was not only the son of man, he was the son of God. He could not stay in the grave. He could not remain dead. He had to be raised again because he was on his, the unique son of God. Hallelujah. What a savior. Death could not hold its prey. Now, you know, because of the power of Jesus Christ, and because of that powerful declaration that was made when God raised him from the dead, should we be looking for anyone else to follow? Can there be anyone greater than this one who died but was raised again? Should we look for someone else to follow? I believe that any sane, spiritually thinking person would not make a decision to follow anyone else, any other person other than the one who was raised from the dead, who showed that he was more powerful than death. Let me ask you something in your thinking. Will you follow him or someone of lesser being? remain. They've done this. Who? His followers, his disciples. The priests knew that they were going to take the body. Unspeakable. We're dead men without that body. The stone. Perhaps we can roll it back into place. It won't work. The seal's been broken. We'll be discovered. We could steal another body. There are tombs all through these hills. We could say that the seal was broken when someone tried to steal the body, but we chased them off. No one wants to check too closely. It would take a hundred tombs to find a body prepared like that one. I can smell the myrrh from out here. We need that body. I say we go directly to Pilate. Tell him we were attacked, that they overpowered us and took the body. You think he'll understand a Roman guard was overpowered by a bunch of Jewish peasants? We don't even have a scratch. Strike me. Do, do it hard. Don't be a fool. It won't make any difference. What if they came in such great numbers? Then we would have died fulfilling our charge. Or should we tell them about the bolt of lightning that came out of the clear sky and put us both to sleep? Perhaps it was some weapon that made us powerless. Sorcery. They'll believe that from this group. Why? What do you know of them? They're a cult. A Jewish sect. 
that man claimed to be a god. And why steal the body? What do they want with it? To make the illusion that he came to life like he promised he would. What promise? That's why they dispatched us. He promised to rise from the dead after three days. The priests knew that his followers would try to carry out the hoax. The pilot consented to guard the tomb. Quintus, please. We must tell the priests what they've done. They will intercede with Pilate for us. He listens to them. What are you doing? Going to find the man. But why? We don't need to fear Pilate's wrath. A man who claims to be God promises to come back to life after being dead for three days. After being crucified and stabbed, he's buried in that tomb. A boulder is placed in front of the tomb and sealed with my own hand. Now, three days later, the boulder is removed, the seal's broken, and the man is gone. And between the two of us, the only recollection we have is a blinding flash of light. It is not Pilate, I fear. What will you do? Follow him. Doesn't that make sense? After that evidence, a man who could rise again from the dead after such a terrible beating and death, this truth, this fact alone should cause any spiritual thinking person to follow Jesus and Jesus alone. But thirdly, the resurrection of our Lord was unique because it has no precedent. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Never before had anyone been raised from the grave in such a way as to be completely transformed and thus beyond the power of death again. He's alive forevermore. Never to die again. Our Lord's resurrection was the first genuine resurrection in the history of mankind. His re resurrection is referred to as the first fruit of those who will be many to follow him. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. The first fruit. In fact, our resurrection, the resurrection of those who choose to follow him, stands or falls with his resurrection. If he wasn't raised, we have all people most miserable because neither shall we be raised. If Jesus be not raised from the dead, we are still in our sins. Of all men and women, we should be most miserable. But he arose and he says, each in his own order. In other words, Jesus is the first of the resurrection of those who believe and have faith in God. He's the first. Now don't miss this wonderful truth. We overlook these fantastic truths so easily. He's the first. The first of what? The first of the resurrection of life. The first of those who will experience the resurrection to eternal life. The first. He's the head. Who's next? You. Me. Everyone who's placed faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. Believe that he was buried. That he 
died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. And when we place our faith in this resurrected Christ, we become a part of those who will take part in the resurrection of life. Now what does that mean? It means that the process has already started. Believers don't look for the end times to begin. The end times has begun because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Next in line, you, me, and beloved, it could happen anytime. Resurrection to life based on the first resurrection. Resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. This event was it a president that's why we can say that we are living between eternities it has started we're next in line are you ready it's only faith in his resurrected Lord that can make you ready and he's worthy to be followed but secondly the resurrection of Jesus Christ is unique because of its unique necessity you see, the resurrection of Christ was necessary to prove that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be. And he made a lot of claims while he was on earth. And the resurrection was necessary to prove that he was not a liar, that he was not a lunatic. But that he was indeed who he said he was, the Son of God. My friends, no, make no doubt about it. And regardless of what the, the Jesus seminar says, our Lord has clearly claimed to be the Son of God. Very clearly. He made that claim, those claims in, in Scripture. That was the reason why, in fact, the religious leaders wanted to kill him because he made himself out to be the Son of God. That's blasphemy. The resurrection was God's proof. That the Lord Jesus was who he claimed to be. The son of God. Again, I repeat this statement to you. We read it before. Please read it with me again as you see it on the screen there. Jesus. Let's read that once again, please. God validated everything Jesus said on earth. How did he do it? By the resurrection. He did it once before. When Jesus first began his ministry. As the spirit of God came upon him in the form of a dove. God tore the heavens apart. And he said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. I'm well pleased with him. At the end of his ministry, God tore the earth apart, as it were. And Jesus came out of that hole. And God validated everything Jesus said by raising him from the dead. He was declared with power, power of God himself, to be the son of God. What magnificent truths these are. But secondly, the resurrection of Christ was necessary to prove that Jesus Christ had accomplished what he had promised. To accomplish 
what he had promised. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ alone would not have sufficed because it is by our identification with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection that we have new life, that we are saved. If he wasn't resurrected, then how would we be identified with it? And that's what justified us. He was raised again for our right standing before God. He was raised for our justification. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great resurrection chapter of the New Testament, Paul argues that apart from Christ's resurrection, we would have no hope. Listen to these chilling but powerful words. Verse 13 of that chapter. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. That means it's without profit, of no value. It's useless. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. But my friends, glory to God! Jesus Christ has been raised. Hallelujah. He's risen. Can you say hallelujah? It's all right to say hallelujah here. Thirdly, the resurrection of Christ is vital because it is a necessary element of saving faith. We lose this so much in our preaching. We trivialize what faith means. In both the Old and New Testaments, a saving faith was a faith in a God 
who could and raised men from the dead. The careful study of the 11th chapter of Hebrews will indicate that the faith of Old Testament saints was a resurrection faith. It was a faith in a God who could raise the dead. One Old Testament figure demonstrates the resurrection dimension of faith. And that's the person of Abraham. When God promised Abraham and Sarai a son in the old age, Abraham believed God because he had come to possess a saving resurrected faith. Paul writes about Abraham's faith in his epistle to the Romans. Listen to chapter 4 beginning at verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body. He looked at it. Can't cut the mustard. He looked at his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Couldn't cut the mustard either. Yet without respect to the promise of God, rather with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised... He was able also to perform. Therefore, also it was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. In other words, Abraham's resurrection faith was put to its, crucif to, to its crucial test with his son. The writer of the book of Hebrews describes it in this way. By faith Abraham, and he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your seed will be called. How could this happen? We would think, the only heir, you've asked me to kill him. How could it happen? Listen, he considered that God is able to raise man even from the dead, from which he all received him back as a type. Those are some magnificent words. Abraham, because he knew God, because he knew what God could do, that he could raise men from the dead, he had no, no hesitation at all to put a knife in the heart of his only heir, even though God said that he would have numberless descendants. Why? Because he had resurrection faith. Faith in a God who could raise the dead. And so we can see that the faith of the Old Testament saints was a resurrection faith. So too the faith of the New Testament believer must be a resurrection faith. Don't tell me that my faith in Christ is like sitting on a chair or going on a plane. And I just go there and I buy faith. Put myself in the hand of the passenger, the hand of the, the pilot and the plane and all the, and the manufacturer this year. No, 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 no. That faith is too ordinary. Mundane. That's no special faith. Saving faith is a special faith. A special kind of faith. It can only come from God. Because it is a resurrection faith. Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me... Who? The one who is the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, not only the one who died, but the resurrection and the life. 
I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. That's resurrection faith. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It takes resurrection faith to believe those words. Do you believe it? Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as God and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's resurrection faith. Believing in the death of Christ is not sufficient to save you. You've got to believe in his resurrection also. Because the resurrection was God's amen to Jesus Christ's statement on the cross. It is finished. Father, it is finished. Crucified. Amen. Resurrection. And our salvation was sealed by the power of God. But finally, boy, I feel like preaching this morning. But finally, our response to Christ's resurrection is urgent. It's amazing to me how the urgency of our eternal destiny seems to be lacking in today's thinking. But it's urgent. The resurrection of Christ is not just a matter of fact, which can be taken lightly. It is literally a matter of eternal life or eternal death. The resurrection is not simply a fact to be believed or rejected without consequence. It is a fact to which our response will determine our eternal destiny. This makes our response more urgent than our next death. Now listen carefully. You could believe in the historical fact of the death of Christ and be lost. You can believe in the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and still be lost. You say, no, 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 you just told me. We have to believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. Yeah, but not the historical fact alone. Let me give an illustration. The video we saw, we had two guards. Well, there's more guards there, of course, something a dozen or more around that tomb. But they represent what was there anyway. Those guards at the tomb, they knew Jesus was dead. They helped to kill him. They knew that Jesus died. They also knew that he was raised from the dead. They were there. They were the first ones to be aware of the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. They believed in his death. They believed in his, in his resurrection, but they were lost. Because they did not believe that his death and his resurrection was for them. And that's the difference. No matter how much you believe the historical fact, no matter how you believe the historical fact of the resurrection, unless you believe that Jesus died in your place for your sin, unless you believe that he was raised for your justification, believing those historical facts are useless to you. They are vain. You must believe that he died for you. He came out of that grave. He says, behold, I am alive forevermore. And he's there making that invitation for us to believe that his death and resurrection was for us. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. Won't you come and join me? Be a part of the first resurrection to life. And so as I close, let me ask you. Do you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the basis for your salvation alone?
No church membership, no good living. It's only Christ's death and resurrection is the basis of your salvation. Do you? Do you believe? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe? If not, I ask you to put your faith in him right now. This resurrection Lord's day. He is there waiting for you to make him king of your life. Listen, he's my king. Will you crown, will you make him your king as well? Listen to someone else telling you about the fact that Jesus Christ, the risen one, is his king. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age, he rewards the diligent, and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Uh, I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. 
Pilot couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. Amen.